0: News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi.
2: A lot of discussion about SERB in the news these days. Now, considering that there was a massive cost associated with that program, there has been some concern about whether or not people are taking advantage of the uh, Canada Emergency Response Benefit. And there was that recent article in the National Post that said 800,000 people who claimed CERB did not file their taxes this past year, which makes them ineligible for the program. That actually is not correct. Dr. Lindsay Tedds is an associate professor of economics and scientific director of fiscal and economic policy at the School of Public Policy at the University of Calgary. Dr. Ted spoke to our Nikki Reitmeier and explained that not only is the basis for that story factually inaccurate. She said it further stigmatizes the people who need Serb to survive in this time of unprecedented crisis. There's been some confusion over the number of Canadians. (laughs) (laughs) Sure, let's call
3: call
0: it confusion. (laughs)
3: You laugh when I say confusion as if that's an understatement.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, yeah. So 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 try not to giggle. So what's (laughs) going
3: on here though? So we have some media organizations like the National Post saying that eight hundred thousand Canadians have received CERB who may not in fact be eligible for it. Where is that eight hundred thousand number coming from?
0: Yeah, so there was uh, in the House of Commons a question that was asked and the, the order paper was posted from Statistics Canada. But the question was simply how many people applied for the CERB that hadn't filed their 2019 uh, taxes Um, you might remember 2019 taxes didn't have to come in until the end of June Um, and you know we can all agree we're in a pandemic and some people could have better things to do with their time (laughs) uh, than necessarily file their taxes which if you don't file them on time you know there's just a little penalty Um, and so CRA when they responded to that question said there was about 823,000 people who applied for the CERB that hadn't filed their 2019 taxes and somehow that got um, spun by individuals, I think, who definitely had an agenda um, that got spun as saying 823,000 people were ineligible for the CERB. Uh, Then that is not the interpretation that you can give to that number because tax filing in the previous tax year was not an eligibility requirement to get the CERB.
3: Right, so to confirm filing your taxes or not filing your taxes did not make you eligible or ineligible for CERB, period.
0: Uh, It didn't make you ineligible. Um, And so this wasn't a criteria for the CERB. I mean, we can all remember um, back in March when, you know, the real um, impact of the pandemic really started to be felt here in Canada. People were, I mean, if everybody remembers those um, unemployment numbers that we were seeing, um, there was, in fact, a, a huge impact on the economy. And the point of the CERB was to get money in the hands of Canadians as quickly as possible so that they wouldn't lose their home, they'd still be able to um, buy food. It was an income replacement program, it was an emergency program, and it was based on a trust-then-verify basis. And we are now going through that verification process, and it's going to take years to do that.
3: And I saw some saying as well, this many people, you know, have retained their jobs, but they're still collecting SERP. But we also know that that's not an eligibility criteria either,
2: correct?
0: Yeah, exactly. The, this, I mean, over the course of several weeks as we were trying to de- design and roll out the CERB, um, there was a lot of uh, very, the the program changed almost daily as, you know, the, the liberal minority government was negotiating with the other parties to make the program do what it needed to do. And one of the things was is that you didn't have to be unemployed, you have to have lost income. Um, So you can have individuals that didn't lose their job, but did lose income, who could uh, qualify for the CERB. Because again, it was an income replacement program. It wasn't a job loss program. It was an income replacement program.
3: And there have been cases of people receiving a SERB check when they shouldn't be getting one. I was reading that 213,000 Canadians may have received two monthly SERB checks when they were only supposed to get one. But a spokesperson for the CRA even said they don't believe that most of these people were being intentionally dishonest. They said those people may have just made an honest mistake when they were applying.
0: Yeah. And, and we knew that was coming. When the CERB was first rolled out, it went, so, and this is also something people have to understand. CERB is administered by Services Camp, Service Canada. I always add an S to it. Service Canada. And their portal for their application, um, they put up uh, their, it, as part of all of their programs, a portal to CERB. But they were overwhelmed with EI applications as well, because this, the CERB took enough time for it to be rolled out that people had had already applied for EI. Then the CERB came out. Service Canada was overwhelmed and couldn't process the applications quickly enough. So we opened up a portal over at the Canada Revenue Agency and actually encouraged people who needed the money to apply over there and we'll work it out in the end. I mean, you know, when you're applying, when you get government benefits, government tracks this quite well. We know who got what. Um, and this is all going to get reconciled. This is not anything people should be freaking out about right now. We have the tools to be able to get money back that uh, there were double payments. People didn't understand the rules, as I said, throughout March. Every day the parameters of the CERB program changed the fact that some people didn't know or they applied for it when the criteria was in one way, but it changed the next day, you know, these are kinds of things that we do um, expect that people may not have understood uh, specific terms. And again, we'll we'll figure this all out, right? I mean, the eligibility requirement was based off of, you know, income. You had to have earned about $5,000 worth of income in either 2020 or over the previous 12 months. Well, even the Income Tax Act doesn't define income. So, what does income mean? (laughs) If if Canada Revenue Agency can't itself define income, why would you expect people to be able to understand what exactly that word meant?
3: And the other side of that, too, is that SERB was not means tested. So, people who perhaps had high incomes could still claim SERB, and that's not fraud either.
0: That's not fraud at all. Again, it was an income replacement program. So like one of the things that we saw, particularly with uh, self-employed people and business owners, was as the pandemic was rolling out, we saw an incredible hit on the delay in invoices being paid some of those invoices actually never got paid. Uh, So the CERB was also there to help people replace their income to keep their businesses alive, particularly businesses that employ other people.
3: So what kind of damage is done when you have inaccurate stories like this that make it out there into the media?
0: Well, one—the whole purpose of this—and it, and it really kind of angers me—is it's painting SERB recipients in the time of an unprecedented economic shock as fraudsters. It's painting them with stigma. Some people who got the SERB are going to read those headlines and um, be worried and panic. Um, this can lead to huge mental health crises, as well as, you know, deaths from suicides. It's just reprehensible. That there are people out there with an agenda who are painting this in a way that stigmatizes CERB recipients. And what I find interesting is, is that the people who are pushing this message that there's so much fraud in the CERB program at the same time are saying, we shouldn't audit the programs for businesses like the Q's the program because we don't want to add to the burden that the businesses are facing. And so you can't have it both ways, right? I mean, if we're concerned about program delivery and where the income is going, we absolutely have to take a look at how it all rolled out and that the eligible people keep the money and we get paybacks from everybody else. We're all in this together. And this isn't about painting recipients of an emergency benefit in the worst economic contraction we have ever recorded in a negative way. It's just not it's just an awful thing to do. Lindsay, it
3: was so fantastic chatting with you. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi.
2: Let's talk about wearing those masks out there when you're out and about. Our Nikki Reitmeyer is with us now for more on this. Good morning, Nikki. Good morning, Simi. It's changed in my apartment building now. So
3: as soon as I leave my suite, my unit, as soon as I walk out that door, if I'm in the hallways, if I'm in the elevator, if I'm in the lobby downstairs, I have to be wearing a mask now. It's been a little bit of a change, but I just keep a mask right by the front door. And then, you know, it's always
2: there for when I go out in the hallway, but certainly times they are a changing. They are. So did your Strata post a notice about that? The reason I ask is that I had a, I went back and forth in an email with someone last week where they were asking me about this. And I, I had thought at the time with the health order that, well, that makes sense to me. Like if they're saying all indoor spaces, if you're in your lobby or your common rooms of your Strata building, you should be wearing Wearing a mask, but the indication that he had from his strata was that we're waiting to see what happens on this for now.
3: Mm, No, the signs that are posted in our building, and one is right at the front door, one is in the elevator, it's a fairly small building. They say, all indoor spaces all common spaces that are you know public shared indoor spaces were are now fall Good. under this mask mandate and they even you know cite what the regulation is they give you more information if you want to go check it out online for yourself and they put all that information up there and they also said you know there's no group Parties? Any no? You know anyone that's not in your bubble that's supposed to be in your unit? Unless they're a family member, unless they live there, you know they're your your one close contact, then they're not supposed to be in your unit either. So they're even watching out for people who may be having. I don't want to say parties because no one in my building really throws parties, but they're watching out for people having social gatherings within the building.
2: Interesting. I did notice uh, yesterday in the mall, though, that the security guards were posted at the entrances and anybody who even like walked into the building without a mask on, they were stopping them and saying, could you please put a mask on?
3: And I feel bad for security guards who have had to be yeah, hired no just so they can tell people, can you put a mask on? Can you put a mask on? Because that's the guy or the gal at the front line who's going to be getting grief from the person who doesn't want to mm-hmm. wear a mask. You couldn't pay me enough. Well, I mean, you you could pay me some money. <laughs> and I would take it <laughs> to stand there all day and just have people berate you
2: because they don't want to wear a mask when they walk in the store. It's ridiculous. I know that you have to stoop to that. They have to tell people that, right? When people should know this. And now there is a fine if if you don't do this, there is a mechanism that you can be fined.
3: Yes, there is. So the province is now enforcing this mask wearing mandate. And that means that if you're caught without a mask in an indoor public space, and that includes a real ta- a retail space, you know, the grocery store so forth, you could be slapped with a, a fine worth a few hundred bucks. Two hundred and thirty bucks is the, the cost of the fine. Hmm, I wonder if that
2: will deter people. My feeling is that every time I've seen somebody complain about this, they have the mask. They will reluctantly pull it out of their pocket and they will put it on, but it's almost like they, if they don't have to, they're not going to.
3: Well, oh, I mean, yeah, and maybe that's why we need security guards standing at the fronts of. Grocery yeah. stores or retail spaces reminding people, look, you know, you got it in your pocket. Just don't be difficult here, please. Just I saw put that on the twice mask. yesterday.
2: I saw that twice yesterday, which really, really? and I'd heard this anecdotally from other people. Uh, my daughter said she'd seen it, you know, at Starbucks kind of. And I said to her, "Really, come on, people aren't really like that." And then I saw it twice yesterday, so I was also surprised yeah. that I think sometimes people just. Resist for the sake of resisting. But when push comes to shove, yeah, okay, fine. They'll put the mask on.
3: Why? Like, Why waste your energy? Why be difficult? If you have it in your pocket already, if you have no medical reason why you can't be wearing it, if you're just doing it to create a little bit of grief in someone else's day, I mean, why? Why waste your energy? Just put on the stupid mask. You're the psych major.
2: You're the psych major. You (laughs) tell us. I mean, isn't it just because sometimes people don't like being told what to do and they're going to resist no matter what? Yeah, I guess so. You know, you can't tell me
3: what to do. I'm a Canadian. You can't tell me I live in a free country. Put on your stupid mask. At the end of the day, really, that's what it comes down to. (laughs) Everyone else has a right to. Well, no, this stuff makes me crazy because people's lives are at risk here. And that's what really ticks me off about this.
2: That is so true. All right, Nikki, thank you. She's absolutely right. 941 cases yesterday. Another 10 deaths.
1: This is Mornings with Simi. First, the bad news.
2: It is opening day at Whistler Black Home tomorrow, but of course, everything is different this year. So what's it going to look like? What kind of COVID-19 restrictions will they have? Uh, were they Are they just looking for locals at this point? And we mean very local at this point because of where we are with the number of cases. Well, to find out more about all of that, we're joined now by Jeff Buckheister, who's the Whistler Black Home Chief Operating Officer. Jeff, thank you for being here.
4: Hey, thanks for having me on. A little
2: bit bittersweet, I guess. Right? Nice early start to the season, and yet all this other stuff going on.
4: Yeah, you know it's a uh, it's a very interesting time right now for for all of us. And uh, you know, as it's, it's this time this time of year, typically we're getting geared up, and everyone's getting some excitement going. We're looking for the first snowfall and. Um, uh, yeah, we've got to be a little more patient this year in terms of just how we, how we behave and how we go, go about our lives out there.
2: Well, first off, what are the conditions like up there right now?
4: You know, it's, uh, we had a, we had a decent amount of snow yesterday, uh, snowed throughout the day. We've had a a pretty good lead up with, uh, with both snowmaking and natural snow. And I think the conditions are going to be really good, uh, for, for people once they get up on the Hill.
2: Okay. And what kind of, um, you know, restrictions are you putting in place? How are you dealing with the COVID-19 stuff?
4: Well, I mean, we've been working on this actually for, for months, and, and our goal for this year, our, our big goal uh, for us, and I think for the town of Whistler, is to get open. We're going to do that tomorrow. And then from there on, it's to stay open. And we'll try to get to uh, to the end of the season uh, without having to, uh, to close down. And, and in order to do that, I think we need to take a step back, uh, be patient, Uh, recognize that that, that there's a long season ahead of us and if we all do our part uh for that that includes us and in my team uh but the people that come to whistler uh if we all do our part we've got a really good shot at making that happen
2: okay and what does that involve like how will skiing up at whistler black home be different this year
4: so different this year there's uh you know we've we've got a lot of new safety protocols and standard operating procedures that our team is is focused on and, and how we can help them take care of ourselves. Um, but for our guests um, and and our our team, uh, just like we heard on the news, face coverings are going to be required throughout the experience. Uh, lift riding protocols will be a little bit different this year. Um, mo- for, most important thing we can all do is keep our physical distance. <clears throat> Excuse me and uh so, like that those are the layers of protection that we all have, and that we've all been listening to Bonnie Henry talk about. Uh, we also have a reservation system this year uh, that will help us kind of control our environment and make sure that uh, uh, we're not putting too many people into the experience and 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 so that's a big one for us, uh along with uh table bookings so to get to get into our F and B locations, and to experience a, a lunchtime, uh, it's going to look a little different. You'll have to reserve a table, um, which will help us control the experience. So a lot of it's around really kind of making sure that we 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 learn where people are going and keep them spaced out and uh, help get them up into the environment where they can actually space out on the over the eight thousand acres of Whistler. Uh, once you get up there, it shouldn't be a problem. Um, it's just managing through those pinch points.
2: Right, so then are you having to reduce capacity to make that happen? Like how are you determining what numbers you're going to work with?
4: Well, I mean, I think we're uh a lot of this is really depends on how people use it. We're working very closely with with uh Vancouver Coastal Health and, and making sure that we uh we're all aligned on the plan in terms of how we load chairlifts and how we get people up the mountain and uh you know, I, mean, I think that's going to be the the thing that dictates how many people we have, and and we've never we've never done this before. Um, you know, I mean, I think Whistler's been a place where people come, and we just uh, we make it happen, and we get people up there, get them together, and and it's a great time. And so, well, I think we're going to learn every day, and you know, we're going to start conservatively this first four days, uh, uh, starting tomorrow and through the weekend. Uh, we're sold out for uh, for our reservations, and so. I think the big key right now, probably for the people listening today, is if you don't have a reservation, uh, you're not going to be able to get up on the mountain. And so um, that's an element that we've we've put in place this year that's going to be real different for everybody.
2: Okay, so reservation is definitely required to do that. Are the opening hours, everything else staying the same?
4: Yeah, I mean, uh, we had to work with the the daylight that we have, uh, and so yeah, opening hours are staying the same. We're going to try and be uh, as efficient as possible and start getting people up in the morning and 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 spread the upload out of, as as much as we can. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think the 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 core experience, uh, the skiing, the riding, the lifts turning. I mean, all of that's going to be the same, and it's really going to be about uh, taking care of yourself when you're uh, when you're here and you know i think being respectful of others and being respectful of uh the people around you so that we can do this all season long
2: do you get the sense though jeff that there are an awful lot of people waiting to start the ski season
4: yeah i mean i do i think uh you know last year we got cut short a little bit at the end of march and uh you know i mean i think it's it's in our culture here uh in the coast mountains of uh, British Columbia that we, you know, people want to get up into the mountains and ski and and ride. And, um, you know, so there's, there is excitement. And I think I'm just saying to to folks, you know what, we're going to get open. We've got a long season ahead of us. Uh, Let's, let's do it right. Especially right now where things are so critical across the province.
2: Right. And is it better for them to book as soon as possible? Like, do they have to book the day they want to come right away or can they buy a pass and then reserve the day?
4: So our pass holders right now are in a priority period where we're actually not selling tickets right now um, through the December 7th. It's, uh, uh, we're very focused on our pass holders and, and getting our pass holders an opportunity to get up there. And so uh, they have uh, uh, an opportunity to go in and reserve days uh, for the early season. And right now uh, we're waiting to see what kind of terrain we have. We've been opening those up uh, on a week by week basis, starting on the 8th of December. Uh, You'll be able to go in and and book uh, up to up to the availability, up to our subscription level based on how we feel we're doing up here. Um, And and so you'll be able to book for the for the week. And you can also book out uh, seven priority days for the season if you're a pass holder. So some options there for sure, but definitely planning ahead is the thing that everyone's going to have to kind of keep in mind.
2: All right, Jeff, thanks so much for joining us.
4: Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you.
2: And good luck. That's Jeff Buckheister, who's the uh, Chief Operating Officer of Whistler Blackcomb. Now, season opens tomorrow. Obviously, a very different looking ski season up there for one. We have been told they would really rather not have us travel, you know, out. I think Dr. Bonnie Henry even said in one of her press conference, you have to ask yourself, do you really need to go to Whistler? And she used that example there of people having booked, you know, ski trips to go up there. So it will look very different. One thing that works for them here for sure is the fact that they're limiting the number of people who can go up on the mountain. So not everybody can even rush up there, even if you wanted to. It is a reservation system only. So you have to buy your pass in advance and you have to reserve the time and day that you're going to be going that will help them control the crowds that are on the mountain. As uh, Jeff put it, you know, really make sure they have fewer people through those pinch points that they tend to get up on the mountain. They said they're not worried about it. It is getting people through the lift process and those crowded areas with limited numbers that they are kind of focusing their attention on. So you can check it out online, whistlerblackhome.com. It's going to be a challenging ski season for all the mountains. The local mountains are also kind of slowly opening up, but it's the same thing. It's going to be a reservation process for your pass if you want to go skiing. Be nice to do that for people. Get a little fresh air, work out, you know, be outside, and maybe just let your cares go for a little while. But again, part of the process is you're gonna have to plan ahead.
1: This is Mornings with Simi.
2: Our next guest certainly has his work cut out for him. Norm Lipinski will be the chief of police of the new Surrey Police Service after that transition formally takes place. He joins us now to talk about that new role. Thank you very much for being here and congratulations on the new job. Thank you,
1: uh, Sammy. Good to be here.
2: Now, why did you want this job?
1: I think it's uh, right now for me, it's the best job in policing. And the reason I say that is uh, given the amount of experience that I have in three different agencies, it's an opportunity for me to leverage all that. And it's also to uh, leverage my education and so forth. And uh, I'm, I'm a person that uh, leans forward a lot. I, I uh, like to get things done. I like to build things. And I see this as a very, very good opportunity for the community. And I see that it's moving in the right direction, certainly with challenges. But uh, I look forward to it. And I start uh, mid-December.
2: Okay, we'll talk about the challenges in a moment. But what about the criticism that you represent, you know, a status quo that a new police force was supposed to be changing and it was supposed to be different?
1: Well, I think there's a couple of issues there. Uh, First of all, uh, it's important to wait to see uh, on the structure that I build. So uh, first of all, no one person represents an organization. It's uh, the entire organization. So when I look at picking my deputy chiefs, when I look at the other ranks throughout the department, and then when I look at picking the recruits, um, I'm gonna really, really focus on on diversity and, and gender equity. And uh, it's, it's uh, sometimes a little bit of a challenge in policing, but that is important to me. Uh, secondly, uh, it's the type of policing model. And uh, what I always say is I build models that are representative of what the community wants in the city that I work. And uh, presently in Delta, we have a very good uh, policing model, a uh, community policing model. but um, that doesn't mean that's a template that it, uh, I'll take to Surrey. Mm-hmm. I think what needs to be done is a uh, very comprehensive community consultation and uh, with everybody and various groups, all the stakeholders. And uh, that's going to take a bit of time, but I think it's a very worthwhile exercise for inclusion, and then we build a Surrey-centric community policing model.
2: Right. So what is that process going to look like then, given as you say, you're kind of under the clock here, right? Because this is supposed to be up and running next year. How much input will the community have?
1: Uh, Well, there's a couple of uh, elements to that. Uh, Let me break it down for you. Uh, First of all, people talk about the uh, April start date and so forth and so on. Um, I haven't started yet, so I haven't peeked behind the curtain in the sense of is everything ready to go. And what I mean by that is um, on the recruiting side, bit of a challenge, as you can appreciate, because of the pandemic, mm-hmm. okay, uh, but we'll work through that. Uh, secondly, on the legal side, and, and as a lawyer, I, I know that contracts are important, and, and I have uh, no information at the present time on where all those contracts are with the province, with the federal government, etc., etc. So once I get started in December, I'll have a better sense of all that. Mm-hmm. So uh, we're looking for the Vision is to start putting boots on the ground in the spring, but uh, we have to make sure that things proceed as they should.
2: And so, what is it that you will do differently? Obviously, Surrey. A lot of people in Surrey wanted things to be done differently in terms of policing. Uh, that's why this all came about. What is it that you think you and the new force can do differently?
1: I think there's a lot to be said for responsiveness uh, from the community, and and I'll start by saying this. Um, Some of the finest police officers, men and women that I've ever worked with, are in the RCMP. Um, Great police officers, great police officers. And uh, the issue is uh, their contract. And uh, you're talking about an organization of 20,000 people um, out of Ottawa, across the country. So understandably, it's a bureaucracy that moves pretty slow. So when you look at, and it's been said before, Uh, major cities, uh, there's no major city uh, that has a contract police service. And the reason is the ability to respond quickly to community needs. Let me give you an example. So when the RCMP um, patrol anywhere in BC, uh, their policy is uh, federal policy, meaning it applies to all police officers, RCMP across Canada. Mm -hmm. So um, here's an opportunity for the police board, who I report to, to be responsive to the community needs in developing policy, procedure, training, etc. And that's where that community consultation comes in. And I think that's uh, very, very uh, positive. Let me give you another quick example. Uh, Generally speaking, uh, in a municipal police department, the employees, the officers, uh, they stay for at least 25 years, Mm -hmm. some 35 years. And uh, they get to know the community. And in any RCMP detachment, that's, that's not a high figure to have people in one detachment for 25 years. Uh, there is some, but uh, I can tell you in the municipal department, uh, I just throw out a figure of 90%, 95%, stay for 25 plus. And that is very good for community wellness.
2: Uh, some of the councillors in Surrey have suggested that they also would like to have a chief, you know, who lives in the community of Surrey. Is that something that you will be
1: doing? I would consider that. But at the present time, I would have to have discussions with my family. I think that what is important here, and if you look uh, across the landscape in the lower mainland with chiefs and deputy chiefs, if, if you really looked at where they lived, um, very, very few actually live in the jurisdiction where they police. I think what's important here is the energy, uh, the skill set, the experience, the judgment, that goes into and the caring attitude, the caring attitude, not only for your members, but for the community. I think that's what's really important here.
2: Okay, so you're starting the job in December, I would imagine you'll be hitting the ground running what's going to happen right away.
1: I'm going to be looking at uh, hiring uh, deputy chiefs. So there's three uh, deputy chiefs, three, uh, I'll call them streams. One is the uniform people, one is the detectives, and one is the administrative. And uh, I'll be looking to put those postings out. And then once I get three deputy chiefs, the most important one initially will be the administrative one. Why? Because that's the human resource. And we have to start putting things into place for hiring all ranks and uh, uh, moving forward.
2: All right. Well, thank you for your time. I'm sure we'll be talking to you in the future.
1: Thank you for your time, Sammy. I appreciate it.
2: Have a good day. That's Norm Lipinski. He is the newly hired, soon to start on the job, Chief of Police for the Surrey Police Service. So as you heard him say, he'll be starting in December. That is an incredibly challenging job that he has ahead of him. We're already, there are questions about the hiring process and, you know, is everybody going to be happy with this? And, uh, you know, the RCMP say they're already short-staffed. And so there's all these challenges that are already coming into that. So yes, I'm sure we will be talking to him more in the future. In the meantime, if you want to weigh in, particularly if you're from Surrey, uh, tell us how you're feeling about moving forward with the Surrey Police Service at this point. You can email me, Simmy at cknw.com. You can also call our buzz line, 604-331-2899.
1: This is Mornings with Simi.
2: Now we know that you're not supposed to go out and socialize with people outside of your household, particularly at restaurants, but... That doesn't mean that you can't still get out and support your local businesses. You can do takeout, you can still eat with people in your household. So along that note then, we wanted to kind of emphasize some new local businesses that you can help out. So we heard about this cool new place opening in downtown Vancouver that we wanted to tell you about. It's called Street Auntie Aperitivo House and Yuyina Zhang joins us now to talk about it. Yuyina, thank you for being here.
5: Hi, Sarah. Good morning. Thanks for having me.
2: Now tell me, what kind of food do you have at Street Anti Aperitivo House?
5: Uh, we're serving uh, more than Chinese street food. It's a set menu. Um, everything prepaid online. We try to minimize the contact. Um, once you prepaid on talk, then you will have a QR code to scan the door. Um, then you can come in to enjoy one hour dining experience with us
2: well that's that's a different way of doing things, so you don't really have a lot of contact with servers or anything like that.
5: Um not really, because everything prepaid uh even when you come in, we uh, trained our staff and you can sit at your designated area and everybody wears the mask um, our Our menu is step menu, so there's no ordering, there's no checkout uh, so it's just minimum contact.
2: Okay, so it must have been very challenging, Yuyina, to think about opening a business in the middle of a pandemic. How did you do that?
5: Uh, Passion. (laughs) (laughs) My love for food. Um, It has been very, very challenging for me. Um, I got this place about 30 days ago. Um, I just decided to flip it with my team. Um, But now we're open.
2: Okay, so you are open now, but what kind of food are we talking about here? Because I looked at your menu and it's very unique.
5: Yes, um, I would say contemporary Chinese food. Um, all the dishes, um, mostly from my hometown, Yunnan, China. So it's very spicy and bold. Um, we serve like a small tapa style, so small bite, small bite. We want our guests to try as much as. Uh, they can during one hour serving time.
2: Well, wow, that's pretty good then. So you're giving them one hour to eat as much as they can. I, I feel like people yes. are really going to load up. Are you ready for that?
5: I hope they do. I hope they do. That's why we call it Aperitivo House. It's a happy hour, happy belly. I hope they do order a lot of food.
2: Okay, and what is your favorite dish? Out of everything you've got on the menu, what do you love?
5: Um, there's so many. Um, one of our signature dishes, it's Yunnan Ghost Chicken, um, I create that dish during the quarantine time. <laughs> um, so I open my restaurant, and that's the first dish we're gonna serve. I, I- we have another signature dish. It's a uh, sea urchin dumpling, full of sea urchin flavor. The wuni I hope uh, I hope the guests were enjoying that one.
2: Okay, I saw the menu, and I saw the Yunnan Ghost Chicken on there. Does that mean it's really spicy?
5: It is really really spicy, but um we did a few um food tastings. A lot of people can handle that spice. They
2: love it. It's spicy but makes them come back for the second bite. Oh, nice. Okay. So it sounds like everything is really spicy. Yeah, pretty much. Nice. Okay. So did you think this was missing, do you think in Vancouver kind of restaurants and food that kind of street food that you're talking about? Yeah. I
5: I think uh, I haven't had a really uh, amazing street food here. Of course, there there um, food trucks. It's different culture.
1: Mm-hmm.
5: How I grew up in China, because so we have street vendors. They just selling different snacks on the street. But in Vancouver, um, I think I only seen the food trucks. <laughs> so it's I, it's definitely a culture thing. Um, Since we cannot go back and then I just want to create that kind of
2: experience uh, in the dining setting. Okay. And we should tell people they can do takeout too, right? But how does that work?
5: They can do takeout. They also can uh, pre-order and prepay on talk or on our website. It's $28 per set. It comes with three different boxes. So you will get three different kinds of starters. And you will get three kinds of dim sum. And you can have a choice of your main, which is Hainanese chicken, fried rice, fried noodles. Uh, we have eight different items on the menu each week. So we rotate weekly and you always can order from us every day. It will be different.
2: Right. Oh, I'm tempted by that ghost chicken. I'm going to have to try it. Yina, thank you for your time. Thank you. And good luck with the business. That's Yuyina Zhang. The restaurant's called Street Auntie Aperitivo House. And they are, you know, modern Chinese street food, a very unique menu. I was taking a little crispy fish skin with duck egg yolk, Yunnan ghost chicken, which you assume they're using ghost peppers, right? Which would make it very, very spicy. I feel like on a day like today, that would be pretty darn good. So yes, support your local businesses out there. There's takeout options. There is limited contact in dining options as well. Uh, lots of local restaurants need your support right now.